Well, if you would, turn with me this morning in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Zechariah. You don't necessarily need a Bible. If you want a Bible, if you want to follow along, there are some Bibles available on the back table or the back cart somewhere back there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one and allow that to be our gift to you. But you don't need a Bible. The the passage will appear on the screen behind me in just a moment. If you're visiting with us, we just began a few weeks ago a new study of this Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. The highlight of everybody's quiet times, right? Everybody has been, spent a lot of time in Zechariah over the past six months. Zechariah, I hope to increasingly show to you, is a wonderful book. It's a beautiful book. It's a hard book. It's a challenging book. A couple of you have asked me, how are you doing in Zechariah? And I'm like, well, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's challenging <laughs> to figure out how to handle this and particularly how to communicate it to you in a 30-minute slot on a Sunday morning. But Zechariah is a beautiful book, and Zechariah, just to remind you, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has recorded for us events that have happened to him in about the 6th century B.C., half a world away from here in Israel. And what happened first was that he was called by Yahweh, the God of Israel, to communicate to his people that they needed to return, they needed to repent, they needed to not be like the previous generation, their fathers and mothers who rebelled against the Lord and found themselves under the judgment of God being exiled from their homeland. And so the very first thing that we looked at out of the gate was, return to me, the Lord says to his people in the book of Zechariah, return to me. And the people in that time, they did return. They did repent, but things didn't turn around overnight for them. Now, the consequences of the sins of their fathers lingered, making their life hard, making their life difficult, bringing about discouragement, and most significantly for them in their hearts, bringing about doubt in God's promises. Are you really going to do what you said? Are you really to be believed or should we just live our lives as if you're not around? And so it's into this dark, right? We've been kind of camping out on this darkness. Into this darkness, into this discouragement that God speaks to his people through his servant, Zechariah. And one of the things he wants to bring to them is he wants to give them sight, spiritual sight so that they can see the realities that are there but that are not immediately visible to them. But God is at work. He is interceding on behalf of His people. He is giving hope. His promises are trustworthy. And His Lord gives this to Zechariah to give to His people in the hope that it will invigorate them for the story that God is writing and for the task that God has called them to be about, for the kingdom that is coming. And so as we just dipped our toe in the last couple weeks, he does this through a series of visions, night visions as they're commonly referred to, eight visions that form one cohesive vision, but we're kind of looking at them piecemeal, vision by vision. In the last two weeks, we've spent our time looking at the first vision, and today, we turn our attention to vision number two. 
Now, that's different than what you have in your bulletin, if you have a bulletin. It's not going to be different than what's on the screen, but it's different than what you have in your bulletin because I've done it again. I started writing out this sermon, and I got one point done, and I said, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a sermon already, and I didn't even get to point two. And so we were going to do visions two and three today. We're just going to camp out on number two, vision number two, since I bit off way more than I can chew. And so I'll stop this morning at the end of chapter one. We'll save vision three for next week. That's enough intro. If you're able for the reading of God's word out of honor for his word, would you stand with me? Zechariah chapter one, verses 18 through 21, picking up where we left off last week, the second vision of eight. Zechariah says this, and I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold, Four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go to be seated. As we begin this morning, I want to read one more key verse. You don't have to stand back up. But one more key verse that looms large over this whole book and particularly over this vision and next week's vision. It's back in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says this, Zechariah 1, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. That, brothers and sisters, is good news. That is good news for the ears of the people of God. It's the best news that God could have given. That his presence will once again be in their midst. A presence that is undeserved and gracious and yet brings with it life and hope. And it's what we all need. Every one of us in this room. More of the presence of God. So this morning, I want to try to show you from what we just read this morning, what this vision means and how it reaches into our lives today. I have just one truth for us to meditate on. Again, it was three, but two of them got chopped off. So one truth today, and it's this, God's presence brings justice. It's God's presence that brings justice. Now let's let's unpack that as we meditate and let that roll around a little bit. College football's back. Woohoo! No, go Huskies! Yeah, I mean we got our UW. They're happy today. They had a good win yesterday. Absolutely. I recognize that for many of you, ho hum, college football. Who cares? But for some of us, college football means the start of fall. 
It's exciting. We love it. And last Saturday, not yesterday, but last Saturday, I watched a bit of the Texas-Alabama game. Hopeful, not because I'm a Texas fan, but because I'm a Bama hater. And hopeful that the University of Texas might slay the giant of Alabama, but it wasn't to be. However, something that I saw a lot in that game, if you watched it, you saw a lot of this too, both in the stands and on the fields, you saw this. The horns, right? The hook'em horns. This is the official or the unofficial gesture of the University of Texas having to do with their mascot, of course. It's not just a symbol of identity, but it's a symbol of strength and power. I mean, that's intimidating, right, if I do that towards you. Of course, hook'em horns has to do with what you find in Texas, those intimidating bulls, those intimidating long horns. Horns is at the center of our vision, right? That's what Jeremiah sees. Behold, horns. And we in our modern day are like, wow, horns. You see, the people in the ancient Near East, they were much more familiar with this imagery than we are in our modern society, which is why I bring up hook'em horns. So when Zechariah sees horns at the start of this vision, he would have understood what they represented, even if he wasn't sure what exactly they were there for. Horns are taken from the animal world, of course. They're commonly a symbol in the scriptures of royal power and strength. Listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 33, 14. He says, a firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. And while Moses in Deuteronomy is not talking about God's enemies here, Zechariah is told that that's exactly what's gone on with the people of Israel, with God's people. They have been scattered, gored, terrorized by the horns of others, by the strength and the power of other nations. So that's the image that is brought to mind through Zechariah. And one of the questions is, well, who has done this? Well, we know that he sees four horns. So which four of God's enemies is he describing? God's people have had more than four enemies. They will have many more than four enemies to come. So could it be Assyria? Could it be Babylon? Could it be the Persians? Or could it be future enemies like Greece or Rome? And of course, the people hearing this in this day, I'm sure in some sense they're attributing the horns to the Persians and to the, the present oppression that they're feeling, their own experience. But as I've said to you, as we kind of dived into these visions, we don't need to, nor do I think Zechariah aims for us, to definitively identify the four horns. We don't need to identify the horns. The point is not to parse out exactly who is being spoken of. The point of four is actually totality. Just like there are four directions in a compass, right? North, south, east. West. The scriptures sometimes talk about from the four winds or from the four corners of the earth, from everywhere. There's no escape. 
So when Zechariah sees four horns, he's not necessarily speaking of four distinct nations, but he's just speaking of all of these enemies who come at God's people, whether past, present, or future. God's people have long been oppressed, and they will continue to be oppressed. And while justice had brought the wrath of God against his people, it's injustice by those nations that have now angered Yahweh. Remember, we looked at that last week in verse 15, where the Lord said, the nations are at ease. Right? They're relaxed. Meanwhile, God's people are languishing. The nations are at ease. And because of that, I'm angry. Because the nations that I used to punish my people, to send them into judgment, have taken it too far. They have gored and they have terrorized my people, which makes the angel of the Lord, our advocate, cry out, how long, Lord, will you allow your people? Well, this is the answer. This is the beginning of the answer, of Yahweh's answer to that question, how long? And so these horns, these worldly powers, have not only scattered God's people, but as you can see in the text there, They have kept God's people in absolute submission. That's what it means when it says no one was able to raise their head. Right? They're all in submission. They're all in authority to these oppressors. All right, so that's the four horns, the enemies of God, the worldly powers that have come against God's people. But then there is this this opposing force in the vision, right? An opposing force. So in this corner, we have the power of the horns. And in this corner, those raised up to terrify and to cast down the horns, to bring justice to all who oppose God's people, in this corner is craftsmen. Woohoo! Craftsmen. There are four craftsmen. Again, think totality, not identifying specific people or vehicles. The means by which God will bring justice to his enemies, we we don't know specifically. I don't think that's the point of the vision. The more curious thing is we got horns, power, strength. We've got craftsmen. Why not warriors? Like, why not dragons? Why not angel hosts? I mean, he's Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the angel armies. No, craftsmen. As far as I can tell, I'm not a Hebrew stud. I know a little. But as far as I can tell, that's a pretty good definition. It's not a bad translation. I mean, the root term in Hebrew actually covers a variety of different artisans working with a variety of materials. So that root word... The context actually determines what trade is being spoken of. So it could be carpenters. It could be engravers. It could be weavers. It could be blacksmiths, just to name a few. So for instance, in Exodus 28, 11, it's translated as jeweler because the context in, in Exodus 28 is engraving. In Exodus 35, it's translated embroiderer because the context there is working with linen. So the question I guess we have to ask is what's the context here? 
What's the context here? Well, some have said in some translations, I think the the New Revised Standard Version does this and maybe a couple other English translations, they translate it, not craftsmen, that more general term, but they translate it as blacksmiths. Well, that sounds a little tougher, right, than embroiderer. Like, I like that. I mean, I got the horns and the black, horns versus the blacksmiths. I mean, that feels like a fair fight. If we've got the embroiderer against the horns, like, blacksmiths certainly could cut the horns off, right? Cutting the horns off of an animal, I mean, that's a sign of submission. That's a sign of humiliation. But I think there's something else that we are being led to. You see, this term, craftsman, it's a humble term. In many ways, it's weak. It's quite ordinary. And it's a term that is wrapped up with history in the tabernacle. Right? Those, those passages I just read to you from Exodus about embroiderer and engraver, that comes from God's instructions for the tabernacle, for the place of his presence. And all those craftsmen, all those different gifts that came together to create this incredible place for God to dwell with his people. So it's not so much about the character or the strength of the craftsmen within themselves as much as it is, I think, about what they represent and the God who is with them. You see, at the heart of this time period, at the heart of the context that Zechariah is speaking into, underlying all these visions is a construction project, a literal construction project, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of temple worship, the return of God to their midst, which he promised in chapter 1, verse 16. Because the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem would make it crystal clear to all the surrounding nations that the beginning of the end for them has come. Because Yahweh has established himself again among his people. And they knew the stories. They knew the stories of Jericho. They knew that Yahweh wasn't to be reckoned with. And so God will build and no nation will get in his way. And that's why I say God's presence will bring justice. Remember when King David was rising to power, 2 Samuel 5, it says this, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. The point is, brothers and sisters, that to some degree, it is the building of the temple. It is the re-establishment of the presence of God in the midst of his people that would be the evidence of God's judgment upon the nations. One pastor stated it this way, their visible work, the craftsman on earth, displays the invisible rule of the invisible God in heaven. Remember Noah? Of course you remember Noah. 
Noah building the ark. What does the writer of the Hebrews say about Noah building the ark? Hebrews 11, it describes it this way. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah's work of crafting the ark not only saved his family, but it was an indictment against all the rebellion that was going around him. In the same way as God's people put their hands to the ordinary work of making God's house becomes an indictment, it becomes judgment, it becomes justice for those around them. And here's the amazing thing. The agency and the agents of judgment, they're not what we think God would use. Right? It's not warriors. It's not dragons. It's weakness. It's in weakness that his power is so often displayed. So what are the implications for this? Well, let's first put ourselves in the, in the shoes of those who first heard it. Those in Zechariah's day. For Israel in the 6th century, there was an immediate and more temporal fulfillment. The temple would be rebuilt. The preaching of Zechariah, the preaching of Haggai, would indeed ignite God's people. And the enemies, their enemies, would be kicked off of their backs. And to make this happen, they didn't need to do anything more than be faithful in what God had called them to be about. Of course, the Lord used means. The Lord used whatever. He can use whatever means He wants. But they put themselves to honoring Him in the restoration of His house and proper worship. And their task of mortar on bricks was not insignificant, but was the very means that God used to begin to judge the world and those around him. Again, it's he who will judge. It is he that will terrify the nations and cast down his enemies. How he does that? By whatever means he chooses. He can make them turn against themselves. He can bring a natural disaster He can bring a change and a political shift in the king's heart however he wants. But ultimately, it's his presence that will bring about justice in the world. So that's them in the 6th century. But what about us today? What about us today as we sit here? Well, we all sit here frustrated to some degree, to one degree or another, about the injustice that we see all around us. Maybe even injustice that we feel as Christians, as those in the church. Well, we too, this morning, we focus on our own building program. We have a new building program. God has raised up a new horn of salvation. Fast forward to the words of another Zechariah. Centuries later, Luke chapter 1. He speaks of a certain John the Baptist. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. It goes on and on and on. One magical, wonderful run-on sentence. The horn of salvation, vanquishing our greatest enemies, the light which shines into our darkness, which shines into our discouragement, the one whose very presence has brought us peace, the one in whom justice and mercy perfectly meet. That person is Jesus. He is the promise fulfilled. He is the future hope. So you could look at it this way. If you sit in this room with me and, and you call yourself a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. So we in this room, in a sense, we are the craftsmen of Jesus. Not in the sense that it's up to us, but rather we are His workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2.22. In him, we are also being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And our quite ordinary task of bearing witness to His person and His presence is being used by God to usher in His kingdom into this world. A kingdom that, make no mistake, will swallow and smother every earthly power, every rival that stands against it, for every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that task happens in our homes. That task happens in our neighborhoods. It happens in our schools. It happens in our workplaces. And it certainly happens in what we do here. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a promise. What an encouragement. What an assurance that the things that we are about, the things we are about here this morning, the things that the world scoffs at, why are you guys there? Why are you guys eating these little portions of bread and wine? Makes no sense. Why are you standing listening to a, a dude drone on about an old book? To the world, this is all foolishness. It's all silliness. But in God's economy, in God's reality, this is not a mere sideshow. This is the tip of the spear. God's kingdom is coming. And it's coming through us and it's coming through all that we do. And sure, there's a temptation to think that we need to be world changers or that there's more important things that we need to be about. We need to be in the halls of power. We need to be in the realm of politics. Just like God's army back then felt like, well, shouldn't we fortify the walls before we go at the temple? Or shouldn't we work on training our army a little bit better? Now, don't hear me wrong. Politics are not bad. The halls of power are not bad to go into and to be a part of, but they certainly don't trump God's ordinary means. 
and the work that he is accomplishing in ordinary faithfulness, in ordinary craftsmen, seeking to bring God's kingdom to bear on all that they're about, whether it be marketing, whether it be computer programming, whatever it may be. You see, I think this passage and this vision gives us a vision and reminds us that we are called to be the aroma of Christ to the world. Right? We talked about this briefly last week at Rose's baptism. It's an aroma that's pleasing to God, but it's also an aroma that leads to judgment. Let me read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. Certainly we're not. But God reminds us that he's with us. God reminds us that his grace goes before us and behind us. We all experience injustice in the world. We all long for justice to come finally and fully. The promise this morning, brothers and sisters, is that his kingdom has come. And it is coming in fullness. And we need not despair. We need not reinvent ourselves. But we just faithfully pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray that prayer, we walk in ordinary faithfulness to what He's called us to be. Allowing the aroma of Christ and the power of His presence, the power of His Spirit to do its work, to bring about justice, ultimately to bring about Jesus. I hope you're encouraged. This is a good word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for these incredible, amazing visions that you've given your servant. And Father, as we hear it and think about it and seek to unpack it in our lives, I pray, Lord God, that you would plant your word deep in the lives of your people here that you would encourage them in whatever work they're doing as they put themselves to that work, as they put themselves to the work of the church, the tip of the spear, the bow of the ship. Father, we know that your presence is with us and that indeed your kingdom has come and your kingdom is coming in fullness. Oh God, make it so, we pray. In Jesus' great name, amen.